We're starting a brand new series today uh, called Incarnation. Now, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, uh, and next Sunday marks the beginning of Advent. In between there, we have four more special days. We got Black Friday. We got Small Business Saturday. We have Cyber Monday, and then this fairly new thing called Giving Tuesday. Um, so you spend three days buying stuff, and then if you have got anything left over, then maybe you might think about giving something to charity on Tuesday. Uh, and the countdown to Christmas has begun. Right? Anybody put up their Christmas decorations already? I think, <laughs> nice. I think they started playing Christmas music, Christmas music on the radio like two weeks before Thanksgiving even started this year. It's getting earlier and earlier. Pretty soon we'll be starting in July. Um, I have like six whole months of Christmas music. Uh, but uh, th- this is the season of um, shopping, right, and eating, and then passing out in like a food-induced coma, and uh, it's the season of office parties and family, thank- uh, family gatherings, and it's winter break for the kids coming up, and, uh, Christmas trees and decorations and music and TV specials and taking photos with Santa in the mall, all that good stuff, right? But for Christians, the season of Advent has very special meaning. The weeks leading up to Christmas are an invitation for us to recenter our lives around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The Word made flesh. And so Advent is about sharing in that ancient longing, Advent, right, leading up to it's, it's to share in that ancient longing for the one who rescues and redeems and restores us to wholeness and to holiness. And at a time, I think, when Christmas has become this exercise in overconsumption and overstimulation and busyness, it's really critical that we look to Jesus, that we look to our King in order to uh, illuminate a path to something that's healthier, something that's more life-giving, a more abundant life that's marked by grace and, and mercy and, and generosity because Jesus didn't just come to save us. He also came to lead us, to take us somewhere, right? And so we're starting this series called Incarnation, inspired by John 1.14. The Gospel of John starts like this. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he writes in verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation is one of the most essential, central, non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith. Jesus is the Word become flesh from the Latin carnis. God came and made his dwelling among us. In fact, this event was so pivotal that we literally mark, we divide history by it. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, right? 
medieval Latin for the year of our Lord, right? The incarnation tells us something critical about God. It tells us that God is relational, that God is present, that God is intimately involved in his creation, that God cares about what happens to his children. Jesus is the word made flesh, fully God, fully human at the same time. And in Jesus, we find not just our king, not just our Lord, but also our role model because he was fully human. And so we look to the way that Jesus moved through society. We look at the way that Jesus interacted with people and the way that Jesus fully leaned into his humanity. And he lived a full and a rich and a meaningful life. And so we look to him and we say, well, I I need to be like that. I need to follow my Lord's example. And so in this series, we're going to be exploring uh, questions like, what does the incarnation tell us about God? What does the incarnation tell us about God? Why is it so important? Why does it matter that Jesus is the word made flesh? Why is it such a big deal that God came and made us dwelling among us, Right? So what does the incarnation tell us about God? But then also, what does the incarnation tell us about ourselves? Jesus leaned fully into his humanity. And there are are things that in our world, ways that we live that are actually less than, actually dehumanize us, right? The way that we, we view sexuality, the way that we view money and possessions, the way that we spend our time, the way that technology has encroached upon our lives, a lot of those things make us less human. But Jesus leaned fully into his humanity. And so what does the incarnation tell us about ourselves? Jesus modeled for us the kind of life that we are to aspire to. What do we learn from this particular, in this season, when we're supposed to be preparing our minds and our hearts for Advent? Right? To celebrate the birth of our Savior. And then we're going to connect some of the implications of the incarnation of Jesus to the nitty-gritty of life in the 21st century, right? Things that we deal with every day. Money, time, work, family. What does the incarnation have to do with any of these things? Relationships, leisure. How do we invite Jesus into our lives and then ourselves live incarnationally? We'll talk about what that means as Jesus did, to be fully present and connected to God, to our own humanity, to each other. And today in particular, we're going to talk about our relationship with money. How does the incarnation of Jesus actually impact the way that we see money, the way that we handle money? If Jesus had access to your bank accounts, and I know in some families, like one spouse, when they get their paycheck, they just hand it over to the other spouse, right? Maybe the husband says, here, wife, you know, you take care of the finance, or it's the other way around, right? It's, and we say, okay, you, you take care of it, right? So if, if Jesus had access to your bank accounts, if you turn your paycheck over to Jesus every week, right, what would Jesus do with it? Would he use it any differently than you're using it, right? Because if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, then Jesus does have access to it. Right? To, to be a disciple of Jesus is to give Jesus full access to every area of our lives. And absolutely, without question, that includes our money. In fact, it even perhaps even begins with our money, right? Because money is one of our culture's most prominent idols. In a way, we worship it, we devote all our attention to it. The mark of a true believer is that we turn from 
our idols. It's one of the first things that we learn about our relationship with God. We turn from our idols. In one of his letters, the Apostle Paul commends the Christians living in Thessalonica, and he says, you have become, you have become a model. He commends them. You've become a model to all the believers in Macedonia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. I would love for people to say that about Trinity, right? Your faith has become a model to believers everywhere, my friends. And he said, why? He says, because they tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He says, I commend you because you've turned from your idols. And so we need to make sure that we that money does not become our God. Possessions don't become our... We turn from those things and turn to Jesus. So we're going to talk about what that looks like today. But first, let's talk about why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? What's the incarnation all about? Why is that such a big deal? Well, first of all, Jesus came in the flesh in order to reveal God to us. In order to reveal God to us. John 1.14, the word became flesh. We have seen... We have seen God's glory. John 14, 9, Jesus says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, right? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1, 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And then in Hebrews 1, 3, we read this, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Are you getting the point here? Jesus reveals God to us. You see Jesus, you've seen God. You see the Son, you've seen the Father. And for the first time in history, anyone could approach God and ask God a direct question and actually get an answer. Right? They may not have liked the answer, or they might not have completely understood the answer, but they could talk to God. Anybody. Not just the high priest. Not just Moses. Anybody. So, first of all, the incarnation happened because God, Jesus, revealed God to us. But secondly, the Word became flesh in order to lead us so that Jesus could lead us in holiness. Remember, Jesus was God, but he was also fully human. In Hebrews 4.15, we read that Jesus identified with our struggles, right? He shared in our weaknesses. He, he t- was tempted in every way, just like we are. But he did not sin. Now, here's the important thing to, re- to keep in mind. A lot of times, we go, oh, it's easy for Jesus to resist sin. He's God. No, he was God, but he was also fully human. So he, he resisted temptation in his humanity as an obedient human being and showed us what that lo- actually looks like. And so for the first time, we could see. We could see what a truly righteous, holy person looked like. You've never been able to see that before. Somebody who lived in perfect sinlessness is an example to us. And then after rising from the grave, God gave his spirit to every believer so that we also might have this power to overcome sin and fulfill the law of Christ, fulfill the law of love, to love God and to love people that we actually can be holy We actually can be a holy people because now the Spirit of God is in us. So so the incarnation means that Jesus came to lead us in holiness, but most importantly, the most important reason, the central reason, that the Word became flesh. Why is the incarnation such a big deal? 
because Jesus came specifically to die for us. See, God had ways to, God had ways to reveal himself to us in the past, right, before Jesus. He, he could appear in a cloud or fire, and he could speak from heaven. He could do things like that. He had ways of leading his people, right? He gave them the law. He had, he had ways to guide them. But the one thing that, that Jesus, that God could not do unless Jesus had come in the flesh was to die. That was one thing that God could not do unless the word became flesh, unless God was born into the world to dwell among us and to die for us, that our sins could be atoned for, that we might be reconciled to God, become part of his family. God could not do that from heaven. He had to be born into the world specifically to die. In Romans 4.25, Paul writes that Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was born to die. That's why the incarnation is such a big deal. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation is at the very heart of our faith. And it tells us everything that we need to know about God's heart. John writes in 1 John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know, this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know. That's love. I mean, listen as Paul unpacks the implications of the incarnation. Think about, the, again, the, the word made flesh in Philippians 2. It's one of the greatest passages in all Scripture. We read this all the time. And I want you to pay attention to what this tells you about God's heart. Philippians 2, 6, eight, six to 8. Jesus, being in very nature God, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Again, listen. Why? Why did God come in the flesh? Why did Jesus do that? What's the big deal about the incarnation? Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, became a servant, even unto death. And then Paul says, I want you to have this same mindset. Live like that. Love like that. Follow the example of your king. This is what it means to live incarnationally as Jesus did. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And you're going to see in a moment what that actually looks like. People, there's people that actually live this way. They actually put the interests of others before their own interests. They actually live in a way where they don't do anything out of selfish ambition. They value other people above themselves. Paul says live like that. And there were believers at the time, and there are believers in the world today that live like this. This is not just hot pie in the sky, you know, head in the clouds kind of thinking. We're supposed to actually do this, right? And so the incarnation reveals a God who loves us to the point of death. 
And he makes himself nothing for our sakes. Think about this. The God of the universe became your servant. That makes no sense. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. It it seems sacrilegious to suggest that the God of the universe would stoop to become your servant. It seems sacrilegious. It seems scandalous. And it was. It was. The Son of God subjected himself to weakness and frailty and of the human condition to to hunger and thirst and pain and suffering to the utter humiliation of the cross to ridicule and rejection and torture to the cruelest of deaths. For what? For love. For us. For broken people, selfish people, sinful people. This is the God that is revealed to us through Christ, the Word made flesh. This is our Savior. This is our King. And we have seen His glory, His magnificence, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of fire and brimstone, no, full of grace and full of truth. Now, what does that have to do with money? What's that got to do with the way that we view and handle our money and possessions? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's read from Second Corinthians Chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. You can look in your smartphones. There's Bibles in front of you. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15. If you have trouble finding it, just ask someone next to you. They'll help you out. Unless they don't know either, in which case you're both stuck. Then ask someone else. So let me give you some background here. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. And... In this letter, in this section of the letter, Paul is urging the believers in Corinth to give financially, specifically to the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem was the mother church, right? That was where it all started on Pentecost. It was the first church to be established. And so it was very large. There were thousands of people in the church of Jerusalem, and they were very, very poor. In fact, they were destitute. And, and so Paul had been collecting money for over a year from the Gentile, from the non-Jewish churches in all throughout Asia to take back to Jerusalem to provide food and clothing and necessities. Now, why? Were the Christians in Jerusalem, like, really lazy? Right? Why were they so poor? No, they weren't lazy. This is what happened. The church in Jerusalem was made up uh, primarily of pilgrims. They had come to Jerusalem for various religious festivals, right? And they heard the gospel. And then they got saved. And then just never went home. And so they didn't have jobs because they just wanted to stay. They wanted to stay and they wanted to hear. This was new. This was exciting. This was life-giving. They couldn't get enough of Jesus, so they stayed. And so they gave up their jobs. They gave up their homes. They didn't have livelihoods. And so the people in Jerusalem kind of had to take care of them, right? Because we're family now. 
And the early Christians also, a second reason they were poor is they suffered from a lot of persecution. They were rejected because they believed in Jesus. And so those who had jobs lost their jobs or their social status or their families. They lost everything. Thirdly, the Roman occupation in general had this impoverishing effect on the people. Taxes were outrageously high. It was just a difficult time for everyone. And so for a while, the church in Jerusalem was able to take care of their own people, right? And in fact, those who had land or they had homes, they had possessions, they just sold it. And then they just used the proceeds. They said, here, take what you need, right? And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful, selfless community. We read about it in the book of Acts. And the church just kept growing larger. And more and more people were coming. And the persecution got worse and worse. And finally, they just ran out of money. Nobody had anything left to sell. And their resources were depleted. And so Paul started appealing to the churches throughout Asia for help. Now, it's significant that Paul was asking the Gentile, the non-Jewish churches, to support their Jewish brothers and sisters, the Jewish Christians. Because this helped to affirm that they were one family, that in, in Christ there is no Gentile or Jew or Greek, right? It helped break down any lingering walls of hostility. They were helping each other help to bind them together. And the church at Corinth, who Paul is addressing here, was the first church to give. They were the first church to give. But then they had a falling out with Paul. They kind of had this kind of falling out, right? But then they sorted things out. They reestablished their relationship. They were, everyone loves each other now. And Paul wants to encourage them to finish what they started because they, they had stopped giving, Right? And they said he wanted them to finish that and provide for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so this is where we pick it up in, in verse 8, where Paul writes, And now, brothers and sisters, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace. Everybody following along? About the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, there were three churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Berea and Thessalonica, okay? Three churches. Two of them we have letters for in the Bible. Macedonia was even poorer than Jerusalem. It had been in Roman territory for 200 years, and they'd been treated very cruelly. Their resources had been confiscated. They were treated just about like slaves. All these civil wars had happened there and kind of devastated the area. And the Macedonian churches ex experienced even greater persecution and poverty, and yet Paul here, watch this, he holds them up as an example to the Corinthians, the churches of Macedonia. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He says, for I testify, they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. They didn't have anything. They gave beyond their ability entirely on their own. Listen to this. They urgently pleaded with us. They begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. And so we urged Titus, just as he earlier made a beginning, to bring to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, he commends the, the uh, Corinthians. He says, you guys, are, you guys are wonderful at so many things, in faith, in speech, in knowledge. You guys are learning the word. 
right? You're wise in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you. He says, now see that you also excel in this grace of giving. The Macedonian churches gave out of their poverty beyond their ability. They begged for the privilege of giving. Now, this was not normal, right? It's not normal today. This was divinely inspired, Holy Spirit-empowered generosity, the sign of a grateful and transformed heart. Because this is the way that we give, right? This is the way that, that human, human giving looks like this, right? There's, there's, we give, but then there's this, there's a natural threshold. There's a limit, right? There's a point at which our giving kind of stops right about, our giving stops right about where it would actually make us have to change something about our lifestyle, Right? So we, we give out of our excess, not out of our poverty, when there's something extra. But just about where it's, oh, I don't know if I can make my mortgage payment. I don't know if I can buy that new uh, truck that I've been wanting to get. Nah, we, I, I can't get my daily Starbucks fix, right? We stop right about there, don't we? That's human giving. That's what we call generosity. And maybe we might sacrifice a little more for like somebody really close to us, our kids. You know, I know the parents that have remortgaged their house, refinanced their home in order to help their kids pay for college. Okay, that's an inconvenience, right? Okay, so we might do that for our kids. We might do it for our parents. We might maybe do it for a sibling if you like them, right? But that's, we usually don't go outside that circle when it comes to extravagant above and beyond giving. So Paul goes on, he says, look, I'm not commanding you. I'm not ordering you to, I, I, I wouldn't do that, okay? Giving has to be voluntary. It's, a, it's between you and God. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I, he says, I do want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, we listen to that and go, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to compare yourself to other people, Right? What I do is what I do. What you do is you don't compare me to that person. We resent that, right? But here Paul says, no, that, that's actually okay. I mean, how are we supposed to know if you're a new Christian what's normal for a Christian unless you have somebody to kind of look at and say, oh, I, that's what it looks like, right? We, we do it all the time. It's natural. He says, I want to I test the sincerity of your love. I want to compare it with the earnestness of others. We learn by imitation, right? And, and Trinity, we're, we're good at a lot of things. Right? We're good at a lot of things. We have a lot of generous givers, uh, but we still tend to give out of our excess. We, we stop before we actually have to give anything up, before our lifestyle is impacted any way. But what if we, what if we excelled? What if what, one thing we're really good at is this grace of giving? And then Paul connects what he's saying with the Incarnation. Right? With the incarnation. Gives the why. This is why we do what we do. This is why we give above and beyond. He says, for you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, not materially, but he was rich because he was God. He was, he was with the Father. Right? Yet, for your sake, he became poor. He became weak. He humbled himself. He became nothing. He became poor so that you, through his poverty, through his suffering, through his humanity, 
might become rich. There it is. That's the incarnation. That's the gospel, right? God is love. And love, as we talked about earlier, manifests itself through giving. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves, so God gives. Do you see the connection? God loves, so God gives. And not only that, God gives a great personal cost. Great personal cost. For our sakes, Jesus became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. We give out of our excess. God gives till it hurts. We certainly don't impoverish ourselves. We don't allow ourselves to become poor in the name of charity. But the Son of God laid aside his glory and became like a servant, emptied himself. Became like us in every way. He experienced hunger, fatigue, and temptation, took up our pain, bore our suffering, gave up his life, that we might be reconciled to God and become co-heirs in the kingdom. Christ became poor that we might become rich. And then he says, now do what I do. As I have loved you, I'm giving you a new command. As I have loved you, now love each other. Pour yourself out. Dare to become poor so that others might become rich. Give generously and courageously and freely without consideration for your own comfort. Consider other people's needs before your own because they need life so that they might have life and have it abundantly. And then here's what he says. He continues on. He says, this is my judgment. Here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Not what is best for for the people in Jerusalem. He says, this is good for you, guys. I'm inviting you into this for your sake. This is my judgment on what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also have the desire to do so. You're the first to even want to give. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. Finish the job, right? According to your means. For the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. The desire to give is important, right? God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. But desire has to become action. We can't just say, well, I want to give. I sure want to give, right? I have this great desire to give. Oh, well, good for you, right? No, you've got to follow up. You have, to, you have to complete it. You have to follow through for it to mean something. And then he says, and this, this last paragraph is here where we're going we're gonna to wrap this part up. He says, our desire, look, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. Okay, look, I'm, we're not doing this just so that people can mooch off of you. We don't want you to be inconvenienced just so they don't have to take care of themselves. Okay, that's not our goal. Our goal, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, he says, but that there might be equality. Equality. At the present time, your plenty, right, because the Corinthians were doing a little better, your plenty will supply what they need. So that in turn, their plenty, when, when they're doing well, their plenty will supply what you need. Take care of each other. And he says, the goal is, is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. He says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving 
Why? So that there may be equality. You see, generosity is not only about love. Generosity is also about justice. It's about making things right. It's about the conviction that all people are created in the image of God and are therefore entitled to share in the resources that are required for life and human flourishing. Now, in our country, we think of equality, we think equal opportunity, right? You can work. You've got an opportunity, right? There, we have equality. He's saying, no, no, no. Some people who gather much, because just the Lord has blessed them, or they're just unusually gifted, or just blessed, just lucky. You know, they were born into a good family. And so they gather much, but they, get, they have too much. They have more than they actually need. And then there's some people that are busting their butts, you know, working two jobs, and it just so happens that the best that they can do is a minimum wage job. And even putting two minimum wage jobs together, you can't survive here in L.A., right? It's really hard, right? Some of our people are like, nope, can't do it, right? I can't get my daily Starbucks fix on minimum wage, right? No, but it's hard to live, right? So some who gather little, they have too little. And they're working just as much as somebody who's working, you know, in some, in some other job, but just the pay is less, right? So we think equal opportunity, but, but God says, no, 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 I'm not talking about equal opportunity. I'm talking about equality in terms of sharing in the resources that are needed for life. Paul's words are very clear and unambiguous. He says, the goal is equality. And the underpinnings of our economy don't actually support equality. Our system is rigged to reward greed, not generosity. It rewards people who are greedy. It doesn't reward generosity. The rich get richer, and the poor stay poor. And God says, look, those who gather much should not have too much. Those who gather little should not have too little. So how much is too much? Well, we have to, we have to consider that. And how little is too little? And at a time when there are millions of people who are, continue to live in extreme poverty, and the gap between the haves and the have-nots just keeps getting wider and wider. Generosity, radical generosity, becomes something subversive. It becomes a sign of the kingdom. to say, no, 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 no. This is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. Everybody has enough, right? There's going to be no more crying, no more death, no more pain, no more hunger, no more thirst in the kingdom of God. We're going to show people what that looks like by the way that we give, by the way that we balance the scales, level the playing field, make sure that everybody has what they need, right? Generosity is not just about love. Generosity is a sign and a witness of the coming kingdom. It's an expression of God's justice. So, Scripture's very clear. You cannot go through the Bible and walk away and think, well, whatever I have is mine. Right? You walk away and you think, I need to excel in this grace of giving. It's not mine. Right? We are not only that we're supposed to eagerly desire this gift. God, make me more generous. Give me that heart. But something holds us back. Right? Because if I were to say to you, all right, okay, everybody, walk out of here. Everyone, sell everything you have. Give it to people that I need. You'd be like, uh, what, what would be holding you back? What would hold you back from that? What holds you back? The fear that what? 
My children will die. I won't have enough for tomorrow. What if? Now I'm the one that needs help. Some, some, one other thing that holds us back is it's not fair. Right? I earn that money instead of recognizing, no, that, that's God's grace to you. Right? You're blessed that you have a job. Good for you. That's God's gift to you. Don't ever think that that's all because of your genius, right? A couple things hold us back. And John MacArthur tells this wonderful story that helps us overcome our reluctance um, to trust in God and, and not our money. And isn't it funny that our currency is stamped with the phrase, in God we trust? Don't you find that a little ironic, right? When everything about our actions is like, nope. I trust in this, what's in my hand, right? So John MacArthur says that, uh, told a story. He says, one of the most familiar and most encouraging promises in all the Bible is Philippians 4.19. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He says, what a promise, right? My God shall supply all your needs. That's a basic bottom line level of confidence that should have this huge effect on our giving. And he tells a story about in, how, in World War II, there were, uh, millions of people died, right, in World War II. And many of them were parents. And so what happened is immediately after the war, there was this huge problem in Europe. There were all of these orphans all over the cities of Europe. And so at the close of the Second World War, the Allies as they were rebuilding Europe, they had to take on the responsibility of caring for all of these orphan children. And so they built camps to, to house them and care for them and feed them. And they began to develop. And as these camps developed, the, these, these children were brought there, and it really kind of tested the capacity of the camps. And they all had to, to, to get bigger to try to contain all these orphan. They had so many orphan kids. And, and all these kids, they got really good care the best and healthiest food that they could get for these kids, right? They tried their best to take care of them. But in one camp, the officials became really, really disturbed. They became very concerned because um, after the, these kids had been there for several weeks, uh, they, they couldn't sleep. They wouldn't sleep at night. And they would give them three meals a day, and they would provide for their needs, and they kept them clean, and they gave them an adequate place to sleep. It wasn't The conditions were, were okay, right? And they couldn't understand, why are these kids staying awake all night? They couldn't understand what's wrong. So, so they, they said, well, let's do a study. Let, let's talk to the kids and find out the problem. Eventually, they understood what was going on. And what happened was this. Every night when uh, they put all the children to bed, and th by the way, this is a, a, a Syrian uh, orphan, so this is current, it's happening now. Um, when they put all the kids to bed at night, they had these kind of long bunk beds, and, and what would happen is, before the kids fell asleep, uh, a nurse would come in, a lady would come in with a, with a basket of bread, and she would put a piece of bread in every kid's hand. And the kid would hold that bread, and they would bring it and just hold on to it, right? And the last thing that that kid experienced before they fell asleep would be to wrap their arms, wrap their hand around a nice little loaf of bread. And in a matter of days, they were all sleeping through the night. They were all sleeping through the night. And they realized that even though these kids were fed really well during the day, 
experience had taught them that having food today doesn't mean you might have food tomorrow, right? And so they had this anxiety and they had this fear that they wouldn't be able to eat the next day and it kept them awake. But once they went to bed with a little loaf of bread in their hand, that fear was gone, right? They could enjoy whatever they had because there's some security that I'm going to have something tomorrow. I've got it in my hand. And so John MacArthur says, I really believe that the little loaf of bread that God puts in the hand of every believer is Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that's your little loaf of bread that you hold on to. And it frees you. It frees you to give without fear of tomorrow. Does that make sense to you? So yes, we want to be good stewards uh, of what God has provided for us. We want to lay something away for the future, you know, if we can. But at the same time, we can, we can do that with confidence that if tomorrow God asks you to give it all away, you'd be fine. You'd be okay. You'd be all right. God will replace it. And you can sleep every night with that little loaf of bread my God shall supply all your needs because that's his promise. So, I want to um, show just a, a short video as we, as we close to reflect on our relationship with money and possessions and to invite us to live into much greater generosity. I'm not talking about like maybe you give 10% away and say, okay, well, this year I'll give away 11%. I'm not talking about something incremental that, that really probably you wouldn't even notice. I'm inviting us into a totally different attitude towards money and possessions. And so let's turn the lights out. And I want you to consider at the end of your life how the resources that God has given you will have impacted the world. We don't yet know where the journey will take us or how it will shape our lives. We simply feel a quiet stirring, the call to be faithful stewards of what God has given us. It is the call to live a generous life, and we can't ignore it. We soon discover that cultivating a generous spirit doesn't come naturally. As God directs us, we start to prune away our excess. We make hard decisions, giving to others as we become aware of their need. A true spirit of Christian stewardship starts to take root, and we begin to see the shapes and contours of what God intends for us. When a change is needed, we start over, a little wiser and a little stronger than before. Over time, generosity becomes a habit and then a lifestyle. It becomes more than just something we do. It is now a piece of who we are. And once in a while, we step back. Was it worth it? Did we make the right choices? Did it amount to something beyond a feeling 
or our name etched on a donor plaque. Then something reminds us of all the beautiful things that have happened on the journey and of those who have joined us along the way. As we've done our part to lighten others' loads and care for our little corner of the earth, they've been watching. As generosity has changed us, it has also taken root in them. And we are afforded one of the greatest earthly joys there is, the passing of our legacy to the next generation, knowing that we're leaving it in good hands. Generosity is about so much more than, than you. Parents, your kids are, are going to learn what it means to be generous. They, they learn how to handle money, their attitude towards money and things from you. They, they see how you spend, they see how you live. I want to speak to our seniors. Many of you have been wonderful models of stewardship. And you've given uh, very generously. I want to encourage you as you think about the last leg of this race of life, what you're going to leave behind and to encourage you uh, to give even more. To, as, as a witness, as an example, to the people around you. I learned how to give from some of the elders in our church. And um, you know, God has been really good to me and Christine. Like it just doesn't even make sense. We have some resources now that, um, where we can significantly increase our giving. But I want to give to the point where I have to give something up not just out of the excess, where I scale back my life for the sake of others. Now, we've been giving people a lot of opportunities to give lately, right? To a youth van, to uh, giving to our Hands of Mercy house building project in Mexico. Uh, we give, we're raising money, for, again, for clean water in Africa through Team World Vision. We ask people to help with Family Promise, to help homeless families find housing, angel tree, kids whose uh, parents are in prison. We ask people to serve with Operation Christmas Child and provide toys and goods for people around the world. We volunteer at our fall family uh, festival and other outreach ministries. And, and some people have expressed some concern. They said, you know, you got to ease up on the You're asking too much. People will get donor fatigue. They just... They'll just they'll start becoming resentful. You, you be careful, Pastor. They're going to start resenting you for asking them to give. And, and I can't help but read the words of Paul and think that that thinking is just not in the Spirit of Christ. Right? The Macedonian churches, not one church, but three churches, 
as well as many other Gentile believers throughout Asia, they saw things differently. They were happy to give. They weren't resentful at all. They were secure in Christ. They knew they could give it all away and God would replenish it. They knew that God would supply all their needs. So they pleaded with Paul. They begged Paul, please, please, don't think that because we have nothing that we, have, that we don't want to participate. Yes, we want to participate. We don't have much, but here's what we've got. It's a privilege for us. It's a joy to us. Don't take that away from us. Christ has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Our future is secure. Please let us give. I don't want to encourage us to also have the same mindset to excel in this grace of giving. Pour ourselves out for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel. That everyone might hear the good news of the kingdom. That everyone might share in the riches of Christ. That there might be equality. What if we were a church that begged for opportunities to give and had a completely different relationship with money? And the rest of the world looks at us like we are out of our freaking minds. We say, yes, we're fools for, for Christ. We are completely secure. And people say, that looks like true faith. Let's pray. Lord, these words today are for us. There's something, Lord, that you want us to learn to understand about how we handle money and possessions, that this is an expression of our conviction that Jesus, that you are Lord. And Jesus, you lived in such a way where you, you spared nothing. You poured out everything. You came in the flesh. You gave everything up so that we might live. And you invite us, and you challenge us, you command us to do what you did. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be a church that sees giving as a burden, but we see it as a great privilege, as a great joy. We actively look for more ways to give away what we have. Not recklessly, not without discernment and wisdom, but certainly with... Uh, with great love and gladness. You became poor for our sakes. May we be willing to do the same for others. We pray this in Jesus' name.